Welcome again uh, to everyone. I'm glad that you're here this afternoon. Uh, tonight we start in Jonah, but we're not actually going to be in Jonah tonight. Um, so you cannot flip to Jonah for tonight. Um, but a few quick things of housekeeping before we get started. Um, one, just out this door behind me on the wall, there's a table with some coffee and some water. Uh, so if you need something to drink, uh, feel free to step out and get something. Also, if you need to use the restrooms, if you'll go back up by uh, the doorway where you came in and keep going, go through the double doors. The second door on your right is the women's restroom, and the third door on your right is the men's restroom. Uh, before I get into tonight, um, I always try to find supplemental resources for me to read as we're going through a book together. Uh, and I also want to bring those resources. Sometimes commentaries are too technical and there are even parts that I skim through because I'm like, I'm not that smart. I don't even want to pretend. Um, so I try to find supplemental resources that would aid in your understanding or if you wanted to do a little further study outside of maybe study notes in a study Bible. Uh, and so two to bring your attention to that I'm using. Uh, one is The Prodigal Prophet by Tim Keller, Jonah and the Mystery of God's uh, Mercy. Uh, and so it is for sale at online. Uh, it's at Barnes and Noble. It's at Lifeway. Um, and so Tim Keller in the introduction uh, talks about how Jonah, he, he titled it The Prodigal Prophet because Jonah lives out both the prodigal son and the older brother in his life. In the first part of Jonah's life, he's the younger son who runs from God um, and tries to make life make sense on his own. And then in the latter half of Jonah's life, after the Ninevites repent, he is the older brother who is frustrated at the mercy that God has shown. And then um, also there is this book called Running from Mercy by Anthony J. Carter, who's an African-American pastor in Atlanta. Uh, and so Anthony Carter writes a ton of good resources and materials, not just about Jonah, but for the life and health of the church. Um, and so this is Jonah and, and the surprising story of God's unstoppable grace. And I think it's beneficial to read someone like Anthony Carter's perspective on Jonah because he's not a white man. Anthony Carter is an African-American man who deeply loves Jesus. And there's a different way you will read Jonah depending on the color of your skin, depending on your socioeconomic standing. And so it's beneficial not just to read old white guys. It's beneficial to read from the full counsel of those who are solid biblical teachers. And so I would just encourage you, if you want to get a little supplemental material, you can snag those. But for tonight... We began a six-week journey. This is going to carry us right up until the beginning of our Lenten series where we're going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And there are a few books that you can work through in such a short amount of time that help set the stage better for the consideration of Christ and his sacrifice to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation than the book of Jonah. I mean, the book of Jonah is the T that you set your Easter sermon up on, and then you just crush your Easter sermon. So I'm excited because Jonah, over the next six weeks, is going to help pave the way for us to be in a position to really allow our hearts, not only during Lent, but even in the buildup, to be stirred and our affections to be stirred as we consider how Christ is the true and better Jonah. And so I'm hopeful and expectant of what God would do in us as a church, both individually and corporately, as we make our way through this small yet powerful book. And as we begin, I want to take time tonight specifically to highlight when Jonah was written, how it helps us to read and understand the Bible as a whole, what our goals are as a church for this series, and lastly, take a brief look at Jonah's life before he was called to go to Nineveh. And Jonah also holds a special distinction in my heart because it's up there with Noah's Ark about stories I don't understand why we paint on nursery walls. But anyway, that's another sermon for another time. Let's pray and then we'll dive in.
Father, we've sung your, we've sung the truth of who you are tonight. We've prayed on the basis of the truth of who you are tonight. And so now we want to receive your word in the confidence of who you are. And so, Father, would you grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are open, minds that are for a few brief moments focused in on the text, and in those moments would the Spirit work in the ways that only the Spirit can to draw up sin that needs to be confessed, to provide reassurance to the weary and the faint hearted to strengthen our resolve to live on mission for you they're all miracles of grace in our life so would you continue the miracles in each of our lives tonight in christ's name amen jonah is a real life character and we're going to get into this more next week but it is important before we go any further for you to understand that Jonah was a historical person who actually lived who actually breathed who actually died and is now more than likely enjoying God's presence in heaven I don't know for certain how that all ended up with Jonah and we're going to see that by the time we get to the end of the book of Jonah but one of the key things that you have to wrap your mind around or begin to ask God to make firm in your heart is that the story of Jonah is true if getting tripped up over Jonah being swallowed by a giant fish creates problems for your faith you have a bigger problem because the resurrection is a far greater miracle that that requires even more faith And so there are people who want to make Jonah a parable or an allegory or an untrue story that makes true comments about our life and our relationship to God. But as those who love and cherish the Bible, we have to say from the outset, Jonah was a real person who really lived, who really survived three days in the belly of a large fish, was vomited up on shore, and then was finally obedient to the call of God on his life. The book and source material for the book of Jonah more than likely come from his own retelling of the story and his experience after he returned from Nineveh. And so he provided the material, but whoever it was that recorded Jonah's story onto a scroll for the very first time is unknown to history. So we know that the story of Jonah as recorded in the book of Jonah is true and factual and happened, but we do not know the actual author of the book of Jonah is anonymous. And there's a wide time frame for when the account of Jonah was actually recorded in book form for the first time. Scholars estimate that it was written somewhere between the middle of the 8th century B.C. and the end of the 3rd century B.C. And so it took a while for this book, this story of Jonah's life, to make it into book form. But what we know is that it was actually written, it was actually recorded, and it was passed around to and read in the community of the nation of Israel and Judah as they went about their life. And so we don't deny the fact, we don't wonder about if Jonah was real and when he lived and how he ministered and what was written down. And maybe you're thinking tonight, why do we even bother with books of the Old Testament? Like, we get doing some psalms here or there. Uh, we get doing a story here or there. And if you're like me, that's how you grew up. Very rarely did you spend a lot of time going through an entire book of the Old Testament. 
It was always a story here or a story there. And at Restoration, the reason we go through whole books of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is that we want to follow Paul's exhortation in Philippians 4.11 where he says that the goal of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, we have to give the saints the word of God. The work of the ministry is not something that we make up. The work of the ministry is how God has called his people to live in light of how he has revealed himself and the gospel in the pages of Scripture. And so if we're going to be faithful equippers for the work of the ministry, we have to be faithful handlers of the word of God in its entirety. And so we do this by doing what we call expositional, we don't call it, other people call it expositional preaching, which is going chapter by chapter and verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. What this does is it allows us to set the socio-historical context of the book as it was written. The Bible and the books that make up the Bible were written in space and in time by real people facing real problems that we are largely unable to identify with. And if you're ever going to understand the right way to apply your scriptures to your life today, you don't start with the assumption that the scriptures were written primarily for you. You start with the understanding that the scriptures were written in space and time to encourage and challenge and convict the people of God at a moment in history. And so by giving background and by going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it allows us to be reminded week after week that this book in its entirety and each of the 66 books that make it up weren't primarily written for us first. The other thing it does is it helps us gain an understanding of how the timeless truth of Scripture speak into our current socio-historical context, both personally and corporately. You have to understand why it was written in the first place in order by the Spirit's wisdom and understanding granted to you to rightly apply it to your life now. And so we want to understand both when and why it was written in the first place, and then we want to understand how and why we would apply it to our lives today. Our prayer is that preaching and walking through the Scriptures in this manner would help us be able to engage others in conversation and then from either a cultural starting point because we understand our moment in history and the moment in history in which the book of the Bible was written. So we can either start from a cultural starting point or inside any particular book of the Bible and we could faithfully walk someone through hearing the gospel story. And so that's why we always start a new series by giving you background on the book and the author and the whens and the whys and the whos and the whats of the, of the entirety of the book. So that one day, if you ever get in a conversation and you can start someone in the book of Jonah, our prayer is that you would be able then to faithfully walk someone through a gospel presentation. Or if they want to question you about an obscure passage in Zechariah, you wouldn't be intimidated. You would go, okay, I know how to make my way through Zechariah and what the points are. So that's why we do this over and over and over again as a church body. Reading the book of Jonah lastly and also helps us understand how to read and interpret the Bible as one continuous story. If your main interaction with the Old Testament is a psalm or a proverb here or there, okay, time out. Is that oppressively hot in here to anybody but me? It's, thank you. Whew. 
this is going to be on that pipe. I guess I'm right here. This doesn't help, probably. I'm right under that. I was like, man, I'm sweating, and I feel good about what I'm saying. <laughs> the Bible, going through books like Jonah, help us understand that the Bible is really one continuous story that follows the four big themes, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or the return of Christ. And if your primary interaction with the Old Testament is a psalm here and a proverb there and a story just plucked out of one of those books of the Bible, it's easy to not see the narrative arc, the redemptive arc that weaves its way through every page of Scripture. Jonah is in the Old Testament, and most of you in here, I'm not doing this to insult your intelligence, but the Bible is broken up into two Testaments. We have the Old Testament, and we have the New Testament. And most people, when they think about biblical history, they take the Old and the New Testament, and they simply try to plot them out on a chronological timeline. This happened on this day, this happened on this day, this happened on this day. That's how we, as Westerners, read and understand history. Everything is chronological, and everything falls on a timeline. So we do the same from Genesis to Revelation. And what we do is we take this grand story of God's redemptive purposes in the world and we flatten it out into quite possibly, if you read it just as a flat chronological understanding of history, it becomes very boring. I would submit that's why most of us don't make it through the law or the Old Testament books where there are genealogies involved. Is because we flatten the scriptures out, we lose sight of the overall message of the scripture and the Old Testament, which is meant to stir in us a longing for Christ's return, the same way it was meant to stir an affection and a longing for the advent of the Messiah and the Israelites, is missed entirely. And so when we preach through books of the Bible, we want to do so keeping in mind the most important piece of interpretation for the scriptures, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible does fit on a chronological timeline as something that did indeed happen in time and space history, but it derives its ultimate meaning from the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the promised return of Jesus. You cannot make sense of the Old Testament living this side of the cross if you don't hold Jesus as the key interpretive point with which to understand the Old Testament. One note of caution. This does not mean that Jesus is the hinge on the gate of a door. There are men who have gone too far in seeing Christ in all of the Old Testament. I don't think Christ was a hinge on a door at the temple, but I think the temple pointed towards the worship of Christ in truth and in spirit. Since we live this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection, we read and understand the Bible by allowing the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. The fullness of God's revelation in time was the coming of his son, Jesus. And so we primarily know and understand exactly, in a broad sense, exactly what the Old Testament meant by using Jesus as the interpretive key when we read Old Testament text. I didn't make this up. This is what Jesus himself said in Luke 24 he has resurrected there are these disciples who are leaving Jerusalem to go back to their hometown and Jesus intercepts them on the road and then this is what Jesus says in Luke 24 verses 25 through 27 
And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself said, I am the key to understanding Moses and the prophets and everything that we now understand to be the Old Testament. And so we want to read Jonah faithfully by looking and considering how we can interpret Jonah in light of Christ and his life and death and resurrection. And by preaching through and working through books of the Old Testament like Jonah, it helps us see how they point to Christ, and it also safeguards us from thinking that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different or diametrically opposed to the Jesus we see in the New Testament. Most people want to make a sharp distinction between when the book of Malachi ends and the gospel of Matthew opens between who the one God was in the Old Testament and who they see in the person and work of Jesus in the New Testament. But if we can read these books and study these books of the Old Testament rightly, it helps us be able to answer some of those questions about well, why the God of the Old Testament seems so mad and frustrated and upset and angry and vindictive and just waiting for people to mess up? I much prefer this Jesus guy from the New Testament. But what reading and understanding the scriptures is one continuous story. And by studying books like Jonah and other Old Testament books, it helps us bridge the gap to understand what it was that the Father was revealing about himself in the Old Testament that would find its full fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. All of the scriptures point to the one God and three persons who are working together towards the end, which is the eternal worship and the exaltation of Jesus. Our prayers as we begin each new book or series at Restoration is that we would rightly see and understand the person and work of Jesus more clearly and what it means for our life and our world. And so that's why we study Old Testament books from cover to cover of those particular books. What then, you may ask, is our aim? Why study Jonah? I mean, obviously, I just told you we're studying it because it's going to point us to Jesus. But outside of that, why study a book like Jonah? Why take six weeks to study a four-chapter book that most of us are so familiar with? We can at least get a four-point outline down on paper, and most kids can follow the overall plot line of Jonah. So why spend this much time invested in one small book? Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal Prophet and the Introduction, says concerning the varied applications of the book of Jonah. Keller says, and I quote, Jonah seems to be about so many things. Is it about race and nationalism? Since Jonah seems to be more concerned over his nation's military security than over a city of spiritually lost people. Is it about God's call to mission since Jonah at first flees from the call and later goes but regrets it? Is it about the struggles believers have to obey and trust in God? Yes, to all these and more. A mountain of scholarship exists about the book of Jonah that reveals the richness of the story, the many layers of meaning, and the varied applicability of it to so much of human life and thought. 
So you literally can read Jonah, and at any point, it probably will be applicable to something you're facing in life. Whether it's where the culture at large is headed and understanding how the church lives as a countercultural witness, or in your own personal life of understanding how the book of Jonah challenges and shapes us. And so what do we want our primary aim, our primary goal as a church to be over these next six weeks? The ESV study Bible in its introduction to Jonah gives us, I believe, the most accurate primary theme to focus on. And it says this, the primary theme in Jonah is that God's compassion is boundless, not limited just to us, but also available for them. And so while you could take Jonah and we could do a six-week anti-wall sermon series to go after a political zeitgeist about nationalism and protecting our borders and all those things, that's not the primary point of Jonah. We could make Jonah a rallying call to missions. If you don't go, who will go? Are you running from God's call on your life? but we would miss the mark. Our primary aim, our primary goal over the next six weeks is that we would struggle deep in our hearts to understand, to rightly see, and to rightly confess who we see as the other. Who we see as undeserving of God's boundless compassion and grace because if we're honest we all have those people in our minds and in our hearts and that's the struggle with the book of Jonah as you're going to see over the next five weeks after tonight is that it is almost an unrelenting knock on the hardest part of our heart where we think we can decide who deserves mercy and who doesn't. We think our biggest struggle with God is over control of our own life. But I believe, if we're honest, our our biggest struggle with God is who we think he should give eternal life to. So Jonah's going to force us all individually and collectively to wrestle with that question. And perhaps there's no more timely message in a world of increasing polarized tribalization and division. If there is one thing we have lost as a society and as a church, it is this idea of nuance and understanding and empathy and compassion for someone who holds even the slightest different view than us. There are ready-made memes to condemn anyone who opposes you. There are ready-made echo chambers for you to run into and scream your own ideological views and be affirmed one right after the other. The book of Jonah is going to call us all to the mat, and I believe by the Spirit's work is going to call us all into deep seasons of wrestling with and confessing those that we think are undeserving of the boundless compassion and mercy of God. Jonah, though, 
didn't just start his prophetic ministry in Jonah 1.1 when God calls him and he runs away. Jonah had actually been an active prophet in the life of the nation of Israel before he was called to go to Nineveh. He served under Jeroboam II in Israel. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 14, 23 through 28. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Good Lord. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might and how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamas to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. If you're familiar with how the Old Testament works, and especially the books of Chronicles and Kings as they lay out those who ruled over Israel when it was one continual, one nation as a whole, and then later as they would have kings rule over Israel, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, if you've read anywhere through any of those books, you know that if the Bible records that you were an evil king who caused the people of God to sin, you were not around very long, and you were often swiftly punished by death. Political opportunism took out more kings, still does. But there was this idea, and it's all throughout Scripture, that if you were evil, and if you cause God's people to sin, and you either increase their sinfulness, or at the very least didn't try to curtail their sinfulness, you were roundly and rightly punished. However, when we read this, it says of Jeroboam II, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Then it says this, He restored the border of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. The Lord delayed the punishment that the nation of Israel deserved. And in a moment, in this boundless, compassionate heart of God that we think we understand, but we really don't even begin to grasp fully, God delays the punishment. And not only does he delay the punishment, but through the words of Jonah, who he's going to call to Nineveh, Jonah sees wickedness have a delayed punishment. And God restores the borders of Israel, giving them security and peace, because God knew if he didn't, there was no hope. Jonah, in his first act, one of his first acts as a prophet, experienced the grace and favor of God when judgment and punishment were warranted. Hold on to that thought over the next five weeks. 
Anthony Carter says in his book, Running for Mercy, God sent Jonah with a word of mercy and grace for Israel. Despite the rebellion and disobedience of King Jeroboam, Jonah prophesied that God would bless Israel and she would experience prosperity accordingly. Consequently, Jonah's first experience as a prophet was a pleasant one. And perhaps you've read Jonah this week. Perhaps you're just familiar enough with the story that you don't really need to read it to recall some of the key points of Jonah's life and ministry. But I think if we rightly understand all that's going on in 2 Kings 14, we're left having to ask questions like, how did Jonah end up running from God when it came to Nineveh? Israel was secure. Nineveh was not a threat to come overtake them at the time. They were not their biggest political enemy or the biggest threat to their borders. How did Jonah so quickly forget this moment of divine reprieve and blessing when punishment was warranted and earned by God's people? How did Jonah become so calloused? Jonah's callous heart, and ours as well, stems from wanting a God who operates according to our agenda, not according to his own perfect divine grace and wisdom. Tim Keller, again in The Prodigal Prophet, says Jonah wants a God of his own making, a God who simply smites the bad people, for instance, the wicked Ninevites, and blesses the good people, for instance, Jonah and his countrymen. When the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit, keeps showing up, Jonah is thrown into either fury or despair. Jonah finds the real God to be an enigma because he cannot reconcile the mercy of God with his justice. And Jonah could not reconcile the mercy of God with his justice because Jonah lived before the cross. We are now able to reconcile through the cross. We are able, at least in small bits and pieces in our finite sin-infested bodies and minds and hearts, we are at least able to begin to see how we can reconcile, how God himself would reconcile both his mercy and his justice in the life and the death and the resurrection of his son. But much like Jonah, we too can create a God in our own image. And when we create a God in our own image, we often find that that God furthers our prejudices, cements our sinfulness, and leads us down a road that ends in misery and frustration rather than worship and adoration as the one true God continues his work in the world. And if you don't think that's true, then let me ask you one question that I asked myself three or four times and just got crushed by my own response. Have you ever been upset that someone got saved? Have you ever been frustrated that God saved your enemy? Have you ever questioned in your heart if God really knew what he was doing because he set his love and affection on that person? coming out of that situation and that circumstance from being around those people. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But it is an always pressing issue on our sinful hearts to be frustrated with the mercy of God 
in other people's life when we are so zealous to experience it in our own. So tonight we have laid the groundwork and next week we're going to get into the beginning stages of the book of Jonah and the story of this callous prophet who is called and used by our compassionate God. And as we work through the four chapters of the book, my prayer is that we will wrestle with what it looks like to be constantly moving towards the others in our life with the truth of the gospel. That we, unlike Jonah, will be spared spiritual amnesia of all the grace and all the mercy that we've experienced because we are daily in the scriptures where we are seeing most clearly the heart of the Father, where we are being drawn near to Christ who moved towards us, the ultimate other to his holiness and his righteousness. He moved towards us in boundless compassion. When we're in the scriptures and in community, we see where the Spirit is working in us to conform us to Christ's character and then sends us out as ambassadors of boundless compassion. Let's pray.